Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of August 17th. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined again by Josh Blank, Director of Research for the Texas Politics Project. And this week, I'm happy to welcome... As our guest, my friend and colleague, Mark Jones. Mark is a fellow at the Baker Institute at Rice University and a professor in the political science department there. And relevant to our conversation today, he is the, I think, fairly newly minted director of research and analytics for the nonprofit Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's been it's been too long. Um, so we'll we'll catch up in public. Um, uh, you know, I, why don't you just start by telling us about the poll that you all just released um, as a joint project of the of the Texas Hispanic Public Policy uh, Policy Foundation and the Baker Institute. What were you guys up to? Well, the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation is a new foundation that was founded as a bipartisan neutral group to examine the policy preferences specifically of the Texas Hispanic population, with the idea being that Texas Hispanics uh, will soon be uh, the largest group in the state in terms of population, perhaps not in the uh, 2020 census, but without question by the 2030 census. And so as a result, I think one of the things that we're interested in is understanding the diversity in this population in terms of political preferences, attitudes towards public policies, and the like. This survey is the first of many that we'll be conducting of both the overall population and then with an oversample of Texas Hispanics. The idea is both to be able to compare Texas Hispanics to members of other groups, which requires, the, of course, the overall survey, but then also the oversample of Texas Hispanics, which allows us to dive deeper into some details of differences in terms of language use, in terms of immigration, uh, in terms of generation, in terms of income, which is often not possible with a standard sample because you just don't have enough variance as you start breaking up uh, the, the group into smaller and smaller blocks. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion of trying to do this for a long time. So hats off to you guys for doing this. Um, you know, for, you know, let's, uh, I'm going to impose the model that we often adopt on you and let's get, let's get the, the headlines out of the way. Why don't you tell us about the main findings you guys had in the presidential and Senate races? And then I want to circle back and talk a lot more about the oversample strategy and, and what you found out about Hispanics. Sure. So on sort of the top lines, when we look at all registered voters, uh, Donald Trump led Joe Biden 47.5 to 40.5, so a 7% advantage with 10% undecided. When we limited it to the most likely voters, the gap between the two narrowed, with Trump at 49.5 and Biden at 44.1, so a 5.4 difference. Uh, which is roughly half of what it was, for instance, back in uh, 2016 when 
uh, in Trump's uh, victory over uh, Hillary Clinton. So in the Senate race, it was what we found was a little, uh, I think it was somewhat more interesting on many respects in that uh, John Cornyn's lead over Democrat M.J. Hager was somewhat more narrow than some other polls have been showing. Cornyn was up among all voters, 44.4% to 37.4%, so 7%. And if you limit it to most, the most likely voters, it was 468 to 40.7, so a 6.1%. But we also found of, of Hager is that she actually has the strongest net positive rating of any Texas politician, about about plus 13. Now, she also has the largest proportion of people, about 28%, who don't know enough about her to offer an opinion. But what the data suggests is that there's a lot of room there for both the Cornyn campaign as well as the Hager campaign to define Hager as we approach November 3rd. And the more successful M.J. Hager is in defining herself in a positive way, the closer this race is going to be. On the other hand, if Cornyn can effectively uh, tar Hager with the brush of being a nat- essentially identical to a national liberal Democrat like Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, then Cornyn's likely to be more successful uh, as we go towards November. You know, I want to bring Josh in. We've, we've talked a lot about that Cornyn-Hager race as something that's just been on the back burner for, for so long. Um, you know, Josh, I was wondering, was you were, you know, we were talking about these numbers before we came on. I mean, do you, do you feel like what Mark and his colleagues are finding is showing progress for Hager or not? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think the way Mark defined it is, is, is perfect. Right. I mean, you know, Hager in some ways, has basically been kind of conducting conducting somewhat of a victory tour since she got into the Democratic primary. And, you know, I think there's not a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, not, not a lot of negative attitude towards her amongst Texas Democrats. But I think the thing that, you know, these results kind of are interesting to me is I'm wondering now as we get to November, whether the top of the ticket races are going to tighten up. Like, are we going to see, you know, I mean, this we see almost, you know, the exact same difference in terms of, you know, the vote margin between Trump and, and Biden as we see between Hager and Cornyn. And we haven't really seen that too much, right? Because, I mean, generally, Hager's been trailing a little bit more. And so this is a sign that she's tightening the race up. But one of the things I kind of wonder is, you know, what is going to be the difference in November between, let's say, the Biden-Trump uh, race on the one hand, the Hager-Cornyn race on the other, and then as we move down the ballot a little bit to some of these less known races, you know, basically, you know, without straight ticket voting, does basically, you know, does the margin at the top carry on through? Because that has some pretty big consequences. But I would say that this poll sort of seems to show that if the race is tightening up between Cornyn and Hager, maybe we're just going to see the partisans fall into their camps and we're going to see pretty similar races across the board. I don't know. What do you think, Mark? Well, yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I mean, one of the real unknowns is what's going to happen in the absence of straight ticket voting. And it could be that we still see this strong partisan linkage at the top of the ticket with, since the president race, presidential race will be first, Senate race will be second, Congress will be third. Those two may have a stronger linkage. What I'm really interested in, in seeing, and we really won't know this until actually after by November 3rd in the evening, is how does that carry down to those Texas state house races that are so crucial for control of the Texas house and control over redistricting in 2021? And so if we would, if it stays strongly straight ticket, that you know may benefit Democrats more. 
than Republicans. But if, on the other hand, we start to see more freelancing as we get further down the ballot, or we see roll-off, that is, where some people, where where and disproportionate roll off where say Democrats roll off earlier than Republicans that could affect some of those down ballot races particularly in the big counties where most of these uh, or at least a large proportion of these competitive races are located in Dallas County and Harris County where at least on voting machines that state house race is going to be over on the second page if not the third page but I think probably the second page you know I'm wondering. Uh... You know, we're going to just jump into this sort of Texas electoral environment since we kind of moved into that. Um, you know, how are you thinking? I mean, I, you know, you sort of mentioned the length of the ballot. I mean, I think the the question of roll-off is really one of the, the key questions here. And we don't, it feels to me like we don't have a lot of good precedent to go on, particularly in this environment. So, you know, when you were mentioning the the higher likelihood that there would be, you know, the possibility of a higher tendency of democratic roll-off. Was that just, I'm wondering if you think that there's an embedded kind of analysis in there, or you're just suggesting that? Because, you know, I've wondered how we gauge, for example, the differential attitudes on the pandemic as a, as a part of the impact on people's decision to possibly get in to the, you know, get into the voting booth, vote for the most salient races and get out and whether attitudes about the pandemic affect that. I mean, they very well could. I mean, because that's going to be a major issue. And it, it's a really, it's not an issue for the midsize and smaller counties because they're the ballots are going to be pretty small. It's really, it's more of a Harris County, Dallas County, Tarrant County to a lesser extent, Travis and Bear County environment where, you have ballots, especially in Harris and Dallas County, that'll be 90 races, 100 races long. And it's there where if you're I, – I, both parties have to be concerned about what, what does that voter who's not all that happy about being there has probably waited in a 20- or 30-minute line to actually get to the polling place and may just want to get out of there as quickly as possible. Once they get to uh, the State Court of Criminal Appeals, uh, and have no idea what the state <laughs> court of criminal appeals is, uh, and are saying I'm done. Uh, and so it's it's really something that could affect. I would say it's not going to affect the federal races because those are so up at those are the first three races at the top. But it is something that could very well affect the state house races, which are further down, and then especially county races in the more competitive counties. You know, you know, Mark, you may you may or may not have looked at this. But uh, you have a pretty good write-up in the report on attitudes towards the Republican Party and how they've been shifting. And I was wondering if you also asked about attitudes towards the Democratic Party. Because in terms of answering this question, it strikes me. And I mean, you may or may not have looked at this yet. And I, you can look at it later or whatever. But it does raise the question. You know, I just know I get these, you know, this happens to me all the time. It's like, well, surely you've looked at this, this thing. And it's like, well, maybe. So anyway, I caveat. But, I mean, I wonder, you know, to what extent is there, is there an a difference between, you know, basically, or not a difference, but amongst, let's say, you know, Texas voters who say they're going to support Joe Biden, what is their attitude towards the Democratic Party? Because it seems to me that would provide us some insight into this question in terms of saying, you know, are people showing up to vote against Donald Trump because of, you know, whatever, the pandemic, they don't like the way he acts, whatever, throw in your reason. 
But beyond that, you know, do they have a positive affective orientation towards the Democratic Party that might allow them to say, you know what, I'm going to take the time and I'm going to check every Democratic box down the list? Uh, we have not looked at that. I mean, we have that question, but we have not. That that was going to be in the third report. Uh, ah, okay. so when we sort of drilled down to that, we did look more in, the, in the, this report. We were more interested in, and we and we had a pre-post question on the Texas Republican Party. We did not have one on the Democratic Party. So we did ask people, uh, "Has your position on has your evaluation of the Texas Republican Party changed since Donald Trump was elected in 2016?" And 43% of Texans said yes, it has. And an, and the shift is overwhelmingly negative among those individuals who have had a change. I love that. I'm sorry, I'll be real quick. I love that question because we always have this sort of discussion about, should we say the Texas Republican Party or the Texas Democratic Party, or are we thinking about the national parties? And at different points in time and space, you know, one makes more sense than the other, depending on, I guess, you know, whether the Texas, you know, often really we're talking about the Texas Republican Party, whether they're more or less aligned with the national party, and in this case with Trump. And it's interesting to try to sort of separate it out a little bit. Yeah, actually, I, we, we weighed around that whether to put the Texas in front of it or mm-hmm. not. I, I sort of decided I put I sort of was forcefully wanted to put Texas in large mm-hmm. part because I'm interested in the extent to which Don, I mean I think there's a clear indication and in all the evidence shows that Donald Trump is dragging down the Texas GOP. Uh, mm-hmm. That is that. Uh, it has been hurt while he has been office in terms of its electoral success, in terms of evaluations of it. And one thing that we wanted to look at is how have people's opinion of the, not the national GOP, but the Texas GOP, have they changed? And it's, you know, what's really clear is that uh, Donald Trump, you know, roughly one in five Texans now has a much more negative opinion of the Texas Republican Party than they did before Donald Trump was elected, compared to only 4%. Uh, who have a more positive opinion. Mm-hmm. And and that was all overall, right, Mark? Yeah, that was everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, Josh and I were talking before this and we've been, you know, like digging through, you know, the, the data we have, trying to figure out what the dimensionality of, of dissatisfaction with Trump is among Republicans. Since in the overall numbers, his numbers have, you know, his numbers have not, decayed all that much. I mean, what I think one of the things that was interesting with the survey results thus far that we're just looking at them is in spite of his negative evaluation on COVID-19, negative evaluation in terms of response to uh, police, uh, police uh, deaths of African-Americans at the hand of the police, and just barely above water on immigration, he's retained a lot of positive support. That is, the evaluations of him are negative, but there are still people who are preferring him over Joe Biden. Yeah. And, and it makes me, you know, and, and we've seen that not only in his, you know, trial ballot numbers, but even in his overall numbers, you know, really for the duration. And I think that we almost, I know, gave up is too strong a word, but we were, you know, asking lots of questions, you know, just really plumbing, like, what is the dimensionality of... Trump supporters embrace of him. And it's kind of hard to underline because, I mean, we have a couple of, you know, attribute kind of indicators, I think, over, over the, over the last couple of years, but by and large, you know, there's just, you know, you, his numbers can move a lot or be sort of, you know, tepid in a lot of particular dimensions other than the economy, really. And maybe it's just that, although that doesn't make sense now, but you can't really get at, or it's hard to get at exactly what it is that 
is providing the stickiness, even as as you guys as your guys' numbers are showing, you know, he's hurting the Republican brand, he's hurting people's assessment of the Republican Party. He himself gets negative policy evaluations, and let, yet by and large, his overall numbers hold. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's part, and I think one of those. I think when we see those numbers, what that might suggest potentially, and we this is something to be watched over the next few months is there's reason to believe that the numbers may not tighten all that much if the coverage of Biden becomes more negative. Now, because Biden has pretty much had a luxury over the past six months where he's remained holed up in his basement, and he comes out and he meets with the media on his own terms. Uh, he does conferences on his own terms. He does everything pretty scripted. He hasn't been had to be sort of on the campaign trail off the cuff the way that he probably will have to be at least a little more as we enter into September and October. And so there's going to be a real test for him in the sense, can he avoid gaffes that are, you know, where he just says things that are embarrassing or counterproductive, or can he avoid statements that lead to concerns that his cognitive abilities are some starting to fade given, you know, the reality is he turns 78 in November. Ronald Reagan, after his second term, and you know, we, you and I, or Jim, were alive back then and watching Reagan. I mem- you know, remember there was a lot of concern about Reagan and whether he was up to being president back then. Uh, and that was when, and he he left office at age seventy-seven. And so I think, you know, it, fair fair or not, there's going to be a real focus on any slip-up Biden makes because he is, you know, almost seventy-eight years old. And so there is the possibility that. A lot of people who are voting far more against Donald Trump than for Joe Biden, uh, you know, and really we're not talking about a huge number of people here, maybe two or three percent. They could start. They could either go back to Trump, or they could sort of make a decision. You know, sort of stay in the neither category. That's. I mean, that's the interesting thing in all this. In some ways, I mean, one, I think you know, I, 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 mean, I totally agree with everything you said, and it's clearly not just you know. Uh, I mean, it's partially. It's a. It's, I don't know if there's a there's a bad no, no good way to say this, but it's sort of a, it's fortuitous for Biden the circumstances because he doesn't have to be out there, he doesn't have to be in the spotlight or try to compete with Trump for the spotlight. I think he's happy to just cede it to him, and let him be the face of the of the pandemic response. Having said that, I mean you're right. I mean Biden's going to have to get out there more, but it does make you. I mean it does make me wonder. On the one hand, how long does a Biden gaffe stick? in this environment and since we've moved into this, you know, this news cycle, like, I mean, can you, I mean, I just can't imagine anything really at all sitting in the news cycle for that long besides the pandemic at this point, or, you know, nightly protests in America's cities. It's just, you know, everything moves so fast. But the other side of it, I think is what you said is super important, which is like, you know, and this goes back to where we started, which is, you know, is Texas a, a two and a half point Republican state, a five and a half Republican state, a seven and a half, nine and a half, twelve. I mean, what what's the advantage they have? And then you start talking about two percent moving either way, and it actually could start to make a difference depending on how you conceive of the electorate in, in twenty twenty, right? Right. No, I agree. Yeah, it's because two percent could be. It may not be consequential. I mean, I think the reality for the presidential race is that's only going to be consequential for symbolic reasons because if Donald Trump is losing Texas. He's already lost Arizona and Georgia, yes. in which case, and, right. and Florida, which in which case he has no hope whatsoever of being president of the United States. But where it matters is, is John Cornyn reelected? Uh, 
do the, say, half-dozen vulnerable congressional Republicans are the seats, at least. So, you know, can Troy, what happens to Troy Nails in down here in uh, Fort Bend County in Texas 22, or to Chip Roy in Texas 21, or to Beth Van Dyne up in Texas 24? You know, do, do they, are Michael McCall in Texas 10, do they lose, um, or do they win? And then I think, and then what I think is fundamentally important is those Texas House races will have a real major impact on the, co- the congressional balance of power for the next decade. And so the, if Democrats are able to get down there and flip those nine seats, that's, we're going to have a very different both Texas congressional delegation, but also U.S. congressional delegation, because without that surplus from Texas, it becomes far more difficult for national Republicans to imagine going back to majority status in the near future. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I want to, you know, I'm I'm happy to be able to ask someone else this. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, Josh and I have been talking recently, you know, as we sort of talk to people around town here in Austin, much as you can under the circumstances, you know, there's this growing sense in the capital community here that that the house is going to flip. Now that's could be group think that could be being, you know, there's a lot of reasons that could be wrong. And my own (laughs) sort of conservative (laughs) impulse sort of feels a little, or my, you know, my intellectually conservative impulse tells me I'll believe it when I see it. But I'm wondering like, you know, how, how it looks from where you are. There's obviously, obviously a lot of competitive, you know, or there's a handful of competitive seats in the Houston area. Um, What's your, what's your sense of how that looks? Well, I think you know. I think the key is to think about it in terms of tranches. And there's, the, in the end, the Democrats need a net gain of nine seats, which requires doing three things: uh, protecting their most vulnerable seats, and that would be, say, Gina Kalani down here in Harris mm-hmm. County, one thirty-two, and then some other people like maybe uh, Aaron Zwiener and Vicky Good, uh, Goodwin and James Tallarico, more up in, in the Austin area. And Michelle Beckley up in Denton County. So yeah. that's the first thing they have to do. And if I actually look at that, I think Democrats are pretty well positioned to protect most of those seats. That is, if you, if you, if I was doing, I wouldn't probably be adverse to an even money bet where I say no Democrat is loses. Although you know, I could see one or two losing, but that's the first step that Democrats have to do: protect their existing seats. The second is to flip. The vulnerable Republicans, probably the most vulnerable being Morgan Meyer up in uh, Dallas, but then also people like Angie Chen Button in Dallas, uh, Sarah Davis's seat down in Houston, Dwayne Boak's old seat that's open here in Houston, Matt Shaheen's up in uh, uh, what, that's uh, Collin County, and yeah. then uh, I guess you know Bill Zedler's old seat uh, in Tarrant County, and that's another group. You know, and there are like six seats there. And so though, that's the second thing that I think that is possible to do, although winning all six of those seats is difficult, but not impossible. But then you get to the next step is they're going to have to then win three seats where presently I think we'd say that the Republican has an advantage. That could be in the open seat down here in Fort Bend 26 where J.C. Jetan uh, was uh, Governor Abbott, spent a lot of time and a lot of money to make sure that J.C. Jetan, who's a Asian-American Republican from Fort Bend County, won that uh, seat. He did. That gives Republicans an advantage there. You have Jeff Leach in Collin County, Lynn Stuckey in Denton County. Uh, those are also you know seats where I you know we have to give the Republican an advantage. Uh, so I think you know, we're in a situation where 
Democrats to get those final three seats are going to have to flip some hard-to-flip seats. So if you think all th- the probability of all three of those things occurring together, I think we'd have to say it's less than 50-50. But you know, at this point, I'd say at least you know, give it a one-in-three shot, depending on how – and this goes back to I think what you and Josh were both saying, though, depending on how things are at the top of the ticket as we hit November. The worse things are for the Republican Party, the better the odds these down-ballot races go Democrat – if Trump is in corner, for instance, are able to widen the gap with Biden and MJ Hager, then the better things are looking for the down ballot Republicans. But the Democrats have to tell all their voters to make sure they finish their ballots. Yeah. Yep. To vote all the yeah. way down. And particularly for these House races where you're going to have a lot of people turning out who have no idea what House district they live in mm-hmm. and haven't really thought about it all that much. Yeah. And, and it's a, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a tricky. I mean, I think trying to figure out the the relationship between the top of the ballot and the very bottom of the ballot is is a lot trickier this year for a, you know the combination of the reasons we've talked about. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like it was malpractice if I didn't say since you're right there in Houston and I don't I don't remember where in town you live. What do you What do you know about the about District 134 and where Sarah Davis is? Well, actually, I'm sitting in 134 right now. <laughs> I thought you might be. <laughs> uh, so well, 134 is a very interesting Educated district guess. because if you had any representative other than Sarah Davis, then this would be a solid blue district, or at least a likely Democratic district, but we wouldn't be talking about it. But Sarah Davis has established a personal brand of someone who's an independent thinker, who's not in lockstep with the Republican Party, and is her own person. And she happens to do it in the best educated district in the entire state of Texas. That is, no district has more college-educated residents and people with postgraduate degrees than 134. So it's a very sophisticated electorate. It's also a Democratic electorate that doesn't like to think that they are straight partisan voters, but rather that they are people who choose the best candidate, who just happens to be a Democrat most of the time. And we, we and call so, them lion independents. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. That's yeah, what I, that's that, well, that, they're they're lion independents at, at an extreme. But the, but, they, but there's cogn- it creates cognitive dissonance for them because as as intellectual, educated, thinking people, they do not want to believe that they are the same as a hyperpartisan. And so one thing Sarah Davis allows them to do. Previously, there were two people: County Judge Ed Emmett and uh, who is a moderate Republican, and then Sarah Davis, that they could say, well, I vote for, I, you know, I, I vote primarily Democratic, but I vote for the best candidates, and in, in the House District, it's Sarah Davis, and County Judge, it's Ed Emmett. Now, that didn't help Ed Emmett uh, get with the Beto uh, tsunami last election uh, that swamped him out and brought in Lena Hidalgo, but it did save Sarah Davis, in part because Sarah Davis has the luxury. Ed Emmett had to compete countywide, where you don't have as many of those voters, where Sarah Sarah Davis has a whole district full of them. So the difficulty I think Sarah Davis is going to run into this cycle is, one, she has a stronger opponent this year than last cycle, than 2018, and Johnson. And last in 2018, the Democrats, by and large, left her alone. Uh, they didn't really campaign too hard against her. Now, with redistricting and control of the House on the line, uh, you know, all, that Democratic love for Sarah Davis is now gone. And the focus is on electing Ann Johnson. So I think Davis is going to have the toughest election of her political career in terms of trying to still convince people to vote for her in spite of the fact that she has an R next to her name. 
Sarah Davis getting ghosted by Democrats. How sad. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just glad you used the love the love metaphor that enabled me to do that. Um, so before we run out of time, let's let's go back and talk a little bit more about your Hispanic oversample. And sure. you know, I, I guess I would say this. You know what? You know, you talked about our need to learn about you know the 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 more subtle aspects of the Hispanic population in the state. What'd you learn? Well, I mean, one thing we were interested in looking at is some generational issues and. We found mixed results in the sense that uh, the biggest gap, uh, and this may have something to do with age. We haven't. We'll look at this in our third report. But first generation uh, Latinos are the most strongest Biden supporters and the most anti-Trump. Second generation actually support Trump over uh, over Biden. But then as you get the third generation plus, it, it Biden has a modest advantage, and so we're going to need to look into that. Another thing we found, I think this was very interesting, was that there's a real difference based on the language that you use at home. If you primarily use Spanish or only use Spanish, then we saw Biden with a 48 to 25 advantage over Trump. But if we flip it over and say people who speak only English or mostly English, then Trump has a very narrow 44 to 43 advantage. So there, and I think that's one of the things that there's often, I think, an archetype that gets... Uh, created by the media as well as some elites of what a Latino is or what a Hispanic is. And it shows there's variance, that is, uh, in, terms of, in terms of who they are, uh, whether they speak Spanish, not speak Spanish. Uh, and then we also have a similar finding related to uh, ancestry. About two-thirds of Latinos have uh, uh, four Hispanic grandparents. Uh, and then among them, you have a 49 to 36 advantage for Biden over Trump. But once you get to uh, Hispanics who have somewhere between one, two, or three Hispanic grandparents, meaning they have one grandparent who is not Hispanic, then Trump and Biden are effectively tied, but Biden at 44, Trump at 42. So there's a lot of variance out there. Uh, one final factor we found is that college-educated Latinos, uh, those with four years or a postgraduate degree, were uh, favored Trump by a 10-point margin, whereas all other Latinos, it was a uh, Biden over Trump by about a 20, 25 point margin, not about 20 point, try 20 point margin. You know, I think all this intersects interest, you know, interestingly with, you know, decades of scholarship on ethnic, ethnic political identity, particularly in terms of Latinos, um, you know, and how you compare Latinos to the Anglo population over time as you, as you cross across generation, as you go across generations, you know, and I, Josh and I were talking, we were particularly stuck, struck by the interesting education inversion there, that the pattern is actually the opposite of what you find, all things being equal among Anglos. Right. And so, I mean, that's where that could be a financial, that's where we need, that's really, I think that's what, a lot of what this poll is telling us is that we need more data and mm -hmm. we need to go back and look at these issues. And that's one of the reasons why we did this initial poll. We're going to do a much larger poll in the future that tries to really dig down into some of these issues. Because one thing we didn't ask in this questionnaire uh, about is, is sort of national origin. Uh, in part, just we're limited on time. But, it, but we do know that a lot of the individuals with four-year and postgraduate degrees often come from places other than Mexico. I mean, there's still a representative proportion. But if you look at the proportion of people from South America uh, in particular, when they come to the United States, a lot, much larger share of them tend to be college educated than is the case for people from Mexico and Central America. And so they, well, that and then, could be part of the degree. But we, since we don't have that 
uh, origin question, we can't get at it. Well, you know, I mean, I think, you know, the other thing that then gets tossed is in there and, you know, the, the national origin thing, I think is probably part of this is I also thought that, you know, you were talking about, you mentioned in passing a minute ago, the, the tendency of people to make the wrong assumptions about, about Hispanics, particularly in Texas. And I thought the other thing I noticed and, and for people that have studied Latin America, like you, this is not surprising, but the difference in the political profile between Catholic and Protestant Hispanics, you know, and I think really flies in the face of what for years was, I think, the assumption that because you had, you know, A, Hispanics were going to be, you know, the vast majority, and it's a big majority still are going to be Catholic, but they're going to be uniformly social socially conservative doesn't really play out in the data that you guys have collected. And it really speaks to you know, having a more nuanced understanding of the politics of, of Catholicism and inside the Catholic Church and the cultural attitudes there. But it also like, underlines you know, the need for attention to the growth of evangelical Protestantism among Hispanic groups. And in Texas, I strongly suspect that while some of that certainly can be is is found we know from demographics and stuff that's already been done among mexican americans it's also the impact among central americans where evangelical churches have made such significant inroads right right no if you go to guatemala honduras el salvador today you're going to find far more active participants in evangelical protestant churches than catholic churches you still may have a, a share of the population that's relatively similar or even slightly more catholic but if you actually ask a second survey question about frequency of attendance, then you know if, if you if your definition of religion requires somebody to at least attend church once a month, uh, then Protestants are going to evangelical Protestants are going to outnumber Catholics in uh, in all the Central American countries. Josh, what else did you notice about the the Hispanic sample as we wind down on time? Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, one specific thing, and maybe something more summative about this, I think, is interesting. I mean, you know, the other thing that sort of strikes me, and we we we've been looking at this in our data too, is the difference between Hispanic men and women in their orientations. And I mean, it's something that you know we're working with a colleague on right now, and it's kind of a this is sort of an aside, but you know, this colleague is in particular is really interested in sort of understanding kind of white male grievance or sort of white male threat as a as a as a political factor. And it's, and he's defined it that way, but it's funny because he's taking some items from our, one of our previous polls or a couple of our previous polls and creating a, a bit of a, of a measure. And, you know, the measure kind of acts as you'd expect people, you know, especially white men high on white male grievance, basically, you know, move in very, a very conservative direction. But the interesting thing about it was you also saw this effect among Hispanic men, but not Hispanic women and not really other groups. And I, you know, it sort of makes you think about, you know, this idea of the Hispanic electorate that, you know, again, if you know anything about it in Texas, it's not, a universally, it's not a monolith. It's not universally democratic. There's always, you know, a, somewhere between, you know, depending on whose measure you want to take, twenty and forty percent of the electorate of the Hispanic electorate that's that is, you know, for all intents and purposes, Republican conservative voters. Um, but this sort of, you know, to some in some ways, really, I think is, you know, it's interesting because this is another survey that kind of starts to look at this. And think, you know, there's there's something maybe going on here with gender and among Hispanics in a way that I think, you know, is, is super interesting. And then just as a summative thing as we get out, I mean, what strikes me in all this is we sort of lay out these generational differences, you know, differences of origin and all that is, you know, how dynamic this electorate's going to be. I mean, ultimately, we're taking a snapshot now as they keep growing. But I always, you know, sort of think, you know, look at the census data and, you know, acknowledge the fact that if we look at the under 18 population in Texas, it's overwhelmingly Hispanic. 
And if you think about all these factors that, you know, you're talking about, about, you know, again, number of parents who are, you know, uh, Hispanic or grandparents who are Hispanic, uh, you know, first generation, second generation naturalized. And so, I mean, ultimately, you know, even once we get a grip on the, you know, we, once we think we get a grip on the Hispanic electorate, it's going to get bigger. It's going to have a bunch of new entrants and it's probably going to change a little bit. And I mean, that's kind of almost why this work to me is so important and so interesting because it's really starting to get at what are the key factors here as we start to understand really what's going to be a majority of the Texas electorate eventually. No, no, I agree. I mean, it's a, and I think that the male female difference is one that's very interesting to look at because really when we talk about Texas, our Texas Republicans having strong support uh, within the Latino population, we're really talking about Latino men. That is, mm-hmm. if it was just Latino women, then the gap would be much larger. And that's where it's unclear. You know, I think it was Lee Atwater used to use a term, uh, was a Republican strategist, called trucker hat Latinos. Uh, but effectively, you know, to the extent to which there are Latinos <laughs> Always had a men, with words. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was effectively saying to the extent to which Latino men whose who shared identities are closer to those of Anglo men who, who share a similar class background often mm-hmm. working class or middle class, as opposed to with recent immigrants. That is, their, li- their lives were much more intersected with their neighbors who were these Anglo men, and therefore their identities were closer to them. As long as, you have, as, long as the Republican Party avoids racist policies like, say, the SB 1070 in Arizona, the Show Me Your Papers legislation. It, it, that, you know, that was where... Or, or you know, some of the Pete Wilson uh, prop was it prop one eighty two? I mean, the funny thing is, even when we poll on these, you know, seemingly divisive issues, at least that we expect to be divisive in, you know, specifically in the Hispanic community, you know, we we still tend to find that core of, you know, again between twenty and forty percent is say, yeah, you know, show your papers, <laughs> right? I mean, we have in our polling at least throughout this, so it's it's yeah, little, they're, you they're, they're, where you locate that limit, the limit case is really not always where you would expect it to be, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of kind of the social, you know, not that this is what I really, well, anyway, I mean, in terms of the sociology of academic research and, and kind of the sociology of knowledge over time, I think we were late to kind of realize that. I think, you know, it's one of the areas where insufficient attention to gender, you know, in the early waves of, of ethnic studies, you know, what used to be called ethnic studies, you know, kind of missed a lot of that, and we're playing catch up on that, and that's one of the things that makes the data really valuable. Well, yeah, no, it's tr- and it's trying to essentially provide the, the look at the diversity within the community, as opposed to sometimes politicians on both sides of the spectrum and elites have a, have a tendency to want to try to present it as a monolith, supporting their point of view, which and that just isn't the case. And I think that is why this is important and why we're glad to have you on. So Mark, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Keep it up. Thanks, Jim. And let's stay in touch. So thanks to Mark Jones for being here. Thanks to Josh, as always. Thanks to the crew in the College of Liberal Arts, the Liberal Arts Development Studio. Uh, You can find uh, the data we've been discussing at the website of the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation. We'll also have Links to results in the poll tracker and on the blog page for this podcast, as always, at the Texas Politics Project website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. So thanks to everybody for listening, and we'll be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project 
at the University of Texas at Austin. 